Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, what a precious promise that is to us. When we understand our own hearts, we realize, oh God, how easily it is for us to be prone to wander, to leave the Lord we love. But those who are yours hear your voice, and they follow you. And you have promised, O oh God, that those who follow you, those who hear your voice, no one will be able to pluck them out of your hand. For the Father is greater than all, and no one can snatch them. Just as no one can snatch them from the Father's hand, Jesus said, and just a reminder that the Father and I are one. One God who will hold us fast. So, God, as we consider the nature of the sermon subject today, it is truly necessary for us to know this truth. And then, oh God, to live our lives with great thanksgiving for who you are. So strengthen us today and help us, oh Father, as we seek to hear your voice and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you're at all familiar with this book, you know that at the very beginning, there's a story of how we came to be. In particular, it says there that God made man and woman in his image. But first he made man, he made Adam. And that man, Adam, was put in the garden to work the garden, to make disciples, as we discovered last week, to fill the earth, to rule over, to subdue it. It tells us in the text there that God said it was good, it's not good for man to be alone. Because it would be impossible for him to accomplish the mandate that God had given to him unless he had a helper, another disciple maker. And so we're, we're told there in the text that after Adam had named the animals, God put him into a deep sleep and took from his side and fashioned a woman. When Adam woke up from his deep sleep, I'm going to paraphrase now, and all the guys will understand. He woke up, saw God's best work ever, standing before him, and said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How romantic, eh, ladies? <laughs> but I think translated it was, now God, this is my type of woman. I think that's what it really was. Like, whoa, this is a babe. Thank you, God. Not one chapter later, well, actually one chapter later, full truth, he is saying, this woman, something like this, this woman who you placed here, who you placed here, it's her fault. So, how did we go so quickly from woe to woe, W-O-E? How did God's very good become very bad so quickly? Why do snakes slither on the ground? 
Why, do, uh, why does the land produce weeds and work produce toil? Why is it such a struggle? Why do women give birth painfully? Why did the first child kill his brother? And why did Christ have to die on the cross? There's a one-word answer. Sin. Sin entered the world. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning, please, to Genesis chapter 3? We want to spend some time there, and I also want to, um, to move you forward to a commentary by Jesus' half-brother, James. So put your, keep your finger in Genesis 3, but we're also going to look at James 1. I want to read for you the text in Genesis 3. We'll look at James 1, 14 to 15 in a few mo- moments. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. It's necessary, by the way, for us to hang on every single word. Look at the words that are there. Look at the inflection of the words. Look at the words that are missing all of a sudden. Look at the words that are added. Look at the words. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There are lessons, life lessons for us to learn here today. I've got subtitled how how sin happens, but the subtitle of my sermon is Life Lessons Learned from an O. Henry Barr and Jesus' Half-Brother James. Now, some of you know that I really like O. Henry bars. Shamelessly, once again, I parade my desires before you. In fact, you ought to know that some sweet little child girl came up to me this morning and handed me two O. Henry bars. That's the kind of thing that's going on in this church. That's the kind of love that I'm receiving in this, ch- this church. I didn't realize I didn't even need to bring a prop because I was going to get two of them. I only have three O'Henry bars here today. There's one problem. I really shouldn't be eating O'Henry bars, see. I have a great desire for them. I'm like a sugar freak. Sugar and salt... That's all I need on God's green earth, and I could be happy. But I really shouldn't be eating these things. Because I have a sugar problem, a medical sugar problem. So I get this temptation, and there it is, my great desire to have this. As long as I don't open the wrapper and eat of it, Okay, so I have a stash of these things in my house, tempting me all the time. I want to show you something in James. See, Satan's schemes, here's how sin works. Satan's schemes is to take advantage of our desires. 
That, that's what the Word of God, to take advantage of our wrong desires. And I, there's a number of ver- texts we could look at, 2 Corinthians 2.11, Ephesians 6.10 talks about spiritual warfare, 1 John 2.15-17, 1 Peter 5.9 talks about Satan prowling around like a lion, looking for who he can devour. We have all kinds of stuff, but I want to zero in on something that's critical. I, I noticed in um, Genesis 3, there is a word translated there that really talks about the, the bottom line issue for all of us. And it is found in verse 6 where it says that Eve looked and she noticed that, it was, that, the, that the fruit was also desirable. That's the problem word for us. Desirable. If you want to understand the nature of sin, it's entirely connected to our desires. I want to show you here in James. James 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. So let's get this out of our, out of our repertoire If you sin, it is not because of God. Nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, notice, look, by his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. Uh, I want to show you here the, the, the nature of how sin grabs hold of us, and then we're going to look at, at, at the likelihood of, of, of how our desires are pulling us into sin. From desires to death. The word for desires is, is epithymia, which literally means lust or selfish ambition. What we actually acquired from our, our heritage to Adam and Eve. This is what we've acquired from them, is literally our selfish ambitions, our, our nature, our, the, the, the success we crave, comfort we crave, all those kinds of things. And this is a life cycle that, that takes place in us of unstopped sin unless we do something about it, unless God grabs our lives. We are gripped by self-interest by nature. We are susceptible, therefore, to evil things, and we are susceptible to the um, seduction of the evil one. And there's a process that goes, takes place in all of our lives that is laid out for us here in James. There are steps to the process. Desires dictate decisions. Every time. We are the source of our decision. It says in the text, when we are enticed and dragged away. By the way, for you hunters out there, these are hunter terms. Nets and snares is what the words really mean. When you are, your desires, that's that's how hunters catch things. Snares, nets, lures, fishermen. They attract fish and animals to the things they desire. It's exactly the same in our lives. We are dragged off and enticed by our desires. And notice what happens here in the text. When by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Look at what this says. Wrong desires impregnated by action birth sin. I take that chocolate bar right now. It's just a temptation. It's just appealing to my desires. If I take the wrapper off, I'm now impregnating my desire and literally setting myself up to give birth to sin. I'm going to take a bite of it. That's how this works. But there's one more step. That's a one-time sin. There's one more step that happens as we get dragged into this. Notice. Then, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin birthed, 
and nurtured to grow to maturity gives birth to death. So that starts with desire, the wrong desire. It starts, then it moves to actually impregnating that desire by doing something to make that desire happen. By my behavior, I actually birth sin one time. And now if I grow that and nurture it into a habitual action in life, I am moving my life toward death. That's how sin works. So the bottom line is it's all about our desires. And the antidote for all of this is pretty obvious. Change our desires. And that's where Jesus Christ comes into our life. When we come to uh, face-to-face with the reality of sin and realize that, that it is taking me away from the living God, self-centered ambition, success, moving me away from rebelling against God, moving me toward death, I come into a confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ and respond to his call in my life, to receive him as Lord and Savior of my life. Now he becomes Lord of my desires. And he enables us by his power to have changed desires. Do we stop sinning? Do our old nature desires go away? Oh, no, we battle with those the rest of our lives. But he empowers us not to take the wrapper off and take the bite of that chocolate bar or whatever your sin happens to be. That's why I really, I really love um, John Piper's ministry um, name. Desiring God Ministries. That, that, that's, that may be one of the best ministry names on the face of the globe. Because that, that actually describes what has to happen in our lives. When we come to faith in Christ, we call on Him every day to change, oh God, change my desires. Change my desires to be for you. Desiring Christ makes all the difference in the world. So, that's the bad news story here, and I'm afraid the news doesn't get any better because we're going to go back to the front of the Bible, and the news only gets better in Christ, but we need to understand as disciples what this sin reality is in our lives, and how are we going to combat this? How is this, how is this going to be, uh, uh, how are we going to be rescued from this body of sin? So I want you to go back to Genesis 3, and we're going to work our way through this. I want to look at six, sort of the microsource of our sinfulness. What is it within us? What happens to us that draws us, entices us, entangles us, so attracts us to sin? What is it? And, and as we look through these six different aspects... Look for your own. Look for what happens to you. you you'll find yourself here. You, you'll, you'll discover where your struggle lies in Adam and Eve's struggle here. By the way, what desires you continue to struggle with are the, are the desires you continue to feed. So, is it sugar? Is it salt? Is it success? Is it ambition? I don't know what it is for you. Self, pleasure. I'm not sure what your struggle is, but you'll find it here. You'll find it in Adam and Eve's story because it's the scope of, of the struggle is pretty much covered here. And, and so I want to dig in here, and I want to notice, first of all, uh, in verse 1, I want to I look at this sentence, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I want to look carefully at this. I want to parse every word like um, CNN will parse Robert Mueller's report. Did God really say? I, I want to emphasize, did God? 
You know, um, we got this serpent, and apparently Adam and Eve were walking by, and he goes, Psst, hey, did God really say? I, I think he may have had kind of a raspy Al Capone-like voice. <laughs> That's how I'm picturing him anyway. Because it says he was crafty. You notice there? It says he was, he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He's going to do the same thing to you this morning. So, what was that sermon all about? What was your quiet time all about? Now, he's, um, he's seeding their thinking with this idea of their life being run by someone else. God. Did God say this to you? Desire in all of us is independence, to be independent. Now, I hope you notice that a talking snake wasn't startling to them. Not at all. That's not the, that's not the startling issue here. Other than the, this, this snake was deceptive, crafty, sneaky. What was or should have been startling here is that they are listening to a subordinate. They, they are listening to a creature that they had been given a responsibility to rule over. One of the really um, nasty things we allow to go on in our lives is to actually think that we need to listen to Satan. We somehow get this idea that Satan and God are in this duel for power and nothing could be further from the truth. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. <laughs> Satan's defeated. And here you've got this serpent who's supposed to be ruled over and dominated. And, and so I want, I want you to, to know right up front that Satan can't make you sin. He cannot. He doesn't have the power. He can seduce you, and he does. He doesn't. He can't make you sin. So he's literally saying here to him, hey, God's telling you what to do? What's with that? Or this book is telling you to, what to do as you walk out or you bump into somebody, bump, bump into somebody, a friend at work. You, what, this book is telling you what to do? Are you, are you serious? That preacher's telling you what to do? Your husband's telling you what to do? Your wife's telling you what to do? God's telling you what to do. Is that, is that the way it's going to be, Adam and Eve? God is telling you what to do. You like that? Is that the way you want to run your life? No, actually, we would like to run our own lives. In spite of the fact that every ounce of common sense within us tells us we are entirely dependent upon the living God for every breath we take, every beat of our heart, every morsel of food that we place in our mouths, every ray of sunlight that we enjoy, every drop of rain that falls on the fields, in spite of the fact that every ounce of common sense screams at us, you can't possibly be independent. You are dependent upon God. We want independence. By the time a kid is one and a half years old, they're like, no. They are rebellious little twits. Where did that come from? It's like, I could crush you. I could starve you. You need me. They don't see it. And here you have Adam and Eve. The desire to be independent overwhelmed them. What's the antidote? Go talk to God. 
That's what should have happened right here is, now, wait a second. We're gonna, you know what? We're going to go back and talk to God. I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you, crafty serpent. I'm going back to talk to God. Because after all, he's the one who initiated the command. Prayer is an act of dependence on God. Go to God, beloved. When that wells up inside of you, oh, I want to run my own life. Oh, I'm not sure I want to do what God tells me. Run to God as fast as you can. Pray to him. Prayer is the antidote. It is an act of of dependence. The Bible tells us, submit to God. Draw near to him. He draws near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so will your evil desires. So that's the first, the desire to be independent. But I, but I want to keep motoring along here. Notice, I, I want to put the stress now on the word did, okay? The first stress was on the word God. Really? God? Are you serious? That's the way you're going to run your life? And the, the, the next stress I want to look at is the word did. Did God really? Are you really happy with the way your life is? I mean, seriously, did God now take away another thing from you? Are you serious? Are you happy with the way things are? Are you happy with the way God is running the universe? We've been six months in. You happy with your life right now? How's God treating you? How often is that voice whispering in your ears? Getting your fair share How's this Christian thing working out for you? What are you needing in this life? Think about it. Look around. You're struggling. Your potty mouth friends aren't. You're not feeling very well. You're struggling with health. Everybody else seems to be doing all right. Is God really looking after you? I mean, did God? I mean, did God? I mean, is he really helping you out? The whole issue of unmet desires. You're, you're lonely. What about, what about everybody else? They have somebody. You don't. The seduction of suggestion here is quite startling. Trying to put in their minds unmet needs. You need that tree. And God's trying to keep it from you. You need that tree. Everybody else could have that tree. You need that tree. Just, just take a little of that illegal stuff to relax. You deserve it. I, I know he's a nice guy. But does he know the Lord? One small look can't hurt you. After all, your wife's really not treating you all that well these days. So where in the Bible does it say you can't take one little look? That's how it starts. How how are we going to deal with that? Unmet desires. Did God really? The only way is to, to ask the Lord to work over our hearts and our desires. Lord God, help me to desire things above. That's why the scriptures are in many places stating to us, listen, put to death the things of the flesh. Answer back to those seductive statements. No, no, no. I'm going to starve the evil cravings. Set your heart and mind on things above. Desire God. Feed new godly cravings and they will grow. No serpent. God is our desire.
we keep looking at the sentence. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is how God's way of blessing is turned into resentment. How, it, how God's wonderful offer of blessing to them turns into a, an attitude of restriction. See what he's done with the word here? Here's what God really said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. I want you to notice the contrast. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent says, did God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see that? Do you see the wickedness of the evil one to twist scripture so it sounds a blessing turns into a restriction? The enemy loves to exaggerate your cravings. He starts to use words like, hey, um, Christianity is so intolerant. Christianity is so exclusive. Other, other ideas are so inclusive. The Word of God says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. Does that sound restrictive to you? Does that sound intolerant to you? Does that sound exclusive? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. You ever visited Niagara Falls? Do you notice they have a fence up along the cliff there? I, I don't see anybody walking up and down the street in Niagara Falls with a big plaque card saying, the community leaders of Niagara Falls are so restrictive. They have a fence up that prevents us from walking off the cliff. Isn't that just an act of care? God's barriers, God's boundaries are acts of care. But Satan goes out, he exaggerates the cravings from any tree. Does God say you can't eat from any tree? No, God said we're free to eat from any tree except. In, the, in other words, all the trees are available to us except for one. And you notice how he started to work over Eve because... She starts to do some nasty things with God's word as well in verse 5. Or sorry, verse uh, f 3. She responds and says, uh, correctly, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. She responds correctly there, verse 2. And then she says, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. When did God ever say that? He's already worked over her mind now that she thinks God is more restrictive than he actually is. He never said you can't touch it. He said you can't eat it. I notice she also takes away the, 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 the title that was used, the Lord God. You see in verse 16 it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, and Eve has truncated his name to, but God, instead of saying the Lord God, she took away his lordship. It says in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.16, the New Testament commentary on this section, that Eve was deceived and became a sinner. Now the helper has become a hindrance to her husband. But it also says Adam chose to sin and became a sinner. So Eve was deceived and became a sinner. Adam, who was there with her, chose to sin and became a sinner. That's why God went straight to Adam and not to Eve first. In this particular scenario, Adam was most responsible. Not the serpent. 
God went to Adam first. You can read it yourself in Genesis 3. And called out Adam first. Adam was first accountable. Adam, why didn't you put your big boy pants on and lead your family? You allowed your wife to be deceived. And he was held accountable for that. Men, you are responsible to lead your families in the truth. God holds you first accountable. And then he comes to Eve. And of course, what does Adam do? He blames his wife. What does Eve do? She should have blamed her husband, by the way. She really should have. That man you gave me, who was supposed to know what you told him, because you spoke to him, not to me, he didn't tell me that I shouldn't take this. But she blamed the serpent, and then God goes to the serpent. The idea of exaggerated cravings. The fourth thing I see here is, did God really say, <laughs> hmm, let me see. She takes a run at interpreting the command, adding her own interpretations. We have among us desires that begin to sit in judgment of God. I can't tell you how many times people have come and said to me, what? Well, I know what you're showing me in God's word, but I can find half a dozen people who will tell me that that's not what it really says. Oh, really? The plain reading of the text? I mean, what didn't they understand? Let, let me ask you, what didn't they understand about you are free to eat any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? For when you eat of it, you will surely die. What is hard to understand about that? They decided to sit in judgment. Come on, Adam. Uh, you know, that command might have been appropriate six months ago. But times have changed. That's so two months old. And so she starts looking at it. I tell you, it looks really good. Looks good to me. How can something be so bad that feels so good? Are we ready, Addie? That's what she called Adam. Addie. Looks good, girl. And then she took it. Tastes good. Looks good. Feels good. Probably good. No. Very bad. Very, very bad. Fight feelings, beloved, with facts. There's a whole Canadian judicial system that is being rewritten to accommodate people's feelings without a shred of objective science or logic. No regard whatsoever for the queen of science itself, theology, but based on people's feelings. That's how we got into trouble in the garden in the first place. Abandoning facts in favor of feelings. They will do you in every time. Feelings are great to go in the back of the bus. The facts have to drive the bus. You will be like God. Ambitious desires. That tree is in the way of what you've always, always wanted. Between you and worldly success, just a little compromise, Eve. Be your own God in this matter. Here's the thing. They uh, had been told they were made in the image and likeness of God already. There were two trees that were of significance in that garden, just by way of review. The two trees were to ma maintain the distinction between creature and creator. God knows best, okay? He had already made man 
in his image to be distinct from the animal kingdom. These two trees were symbolic of the distinction between the creature and the creator. The tree of life was symbolic of the fact that we are entirely dependent for life on God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to make certain, symbolically, we understand that God is responsible for moral choice. And that if we are left on our own independently to make our own moral choices, we turn everything into chaos. Is that not true? Was God not right? Of course he is right. And here's the thing. Each of us might sit here and say, I wish I had, I wish my wife and I had had a shot in the Garden of Eden. We could have set this up a whole lot better for everybody else. We would have done what God told us to do and everything would have worked out fine. Really? Here's the thing. The first two people who had not yet sinned, we don't even know what that's like. The first two people who had not yet sinned had a choice. The tree of life, choose life, or choose independence. And you know what we do? We choose independence every single time. It's it's the sad reality of being a creature. We don't choose life. Unless God had rescued us from choosing death, choosing independence, we would not choose life. That's the story of salvation. Our Savior came to rescue us because we choose independence. We choose rebellion. And he chooses us and enables us to choose life. Practice contentment, beloved. Contentment to know that we are a creature and God is creator. Instead of rushing to the tree of life, how distressing they rushed to the tree of death. The final desire is you will not surely die. How reckless. The desires that foster unbelief. Eventually, if you feed your cravings, your evil desires long enough... It will be because you don't believe in God. It will be because you don't believe Him. In fact, every act of sin is an act of unbelief. You will not surely die. That's the definition of reckless behavior, beloved. To think that what God says He doesn't mean. From freedom and openness and fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden... They went to running and hiding afraid of him. Why? Because they had spiritually died. By disobeying God, they spiritually died. And now their spiritual fellowship, their their, their connection, the spectacular connection they had with God is now died as well. And physically, their bodies began to die. As the fullness of sin sets in, the wages of sin is death. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Why? Because of sin. Sin sends us into hiding. You know what God does? God brings sin out of hiding, forgives us, and forgets about our sin, and hides us behind Christ. Wow. Like, here's the choice, beloved. Here's the choice. Sin and go on hiding yourself, afraid of God, hiding from God, or coming clean, coming clean with God and letting him bring your sin out of hiding and bring you out of hiding and then turn around and forgive you of your sin and forget your sin and put you in hiding behind Christ so he sees you in the righteousness of Christ. That's the beauty of salvation. That's what God offers to us. Because what you crave will consume you. Whatever you plant will grow. You can't 
think that consequences don't apply to you. Oh, it won't, it won't happen to me. It, it won't, this won't affect me. It might affect others. It won't affect me. I, I can handle this. Freedom from God, freedom from his benefits, freedom from life, on to death. How do we close this? Wishing to be shrewd. There's a Hebrew play on words here from verse 1 to verse 7, where the serpent was shrewd, aram. Haram, actually, haram. And then it says in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. The word is harom. Haram. So we can do the same play of words by saying, thinking they, wishing to be shrewd, they woke up to discover they were nude. That's basically what the Hebrew does with it. They had all of this and woke up to find that he had squandered it all away. And so they hastily put clothes on and went into hiding. From whom? They went into hiding from God because that's what we do. We run and hide instead of running to and they were hiding now from each other. You know why? Because this is the nasty thing of sin. Sin causes you to lose trust. Up until that point, they were living a life of full trust in each other. They could be completely vulnerable with each other and with God, fully in trust. But now they couldn't trust each other anymore. They couldn't trust each other to be nice. They now knew that they were selfish and self-centered and that they were out for themselves. In fact, Adam threw Eve under the bus the first chance he got. Saying to God, this can't possibly be the will, this woman can't possibly be the will of God for me. Wait a minute, Adam, she is the only woman around. She has to be the will of God for you. No, no, it, she, it wasn't about Eve, it wasn't about Adam, it was about sin. It's always about sin. Our marriages, our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationships with friends, it's always about sin. And when we sin, we hide. And we lose trust. And we're afraid. And Jesus offers us rescue from all of that. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What do you think the heavy laden is? Heavy laden with sin. Come to me. I'll give you rest. You can trust me. You don't have to hide from me. You don't have to be afraid of me. You come to me. You bring your sin and yourself out of hiding. Because I already know. And I'll take that sin... I'll bury it as far as the east is from the west. I'll never, ever think of it again. I'll never, ever see it again. And I will bring you out of hiding, and I will hide you in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will see you in him as perfect, holy, righteous. Be not afraid come to me. Beloved, today, I don't know what you're struggling with out there. I don't know how you saw yourself in this. I, I don't know where your struggle is in your relationship, in your marriage. I don't know where trust has been broken, but I can tell you that the solution is Jesus Christ and rejecting sin in your life. Reject evil cravings. Reject wrong cravings and desire Christ. And act upon it. And your life will be revolutionized by the living Jesus. He promises it to us. Will you take him up on it? Our Father and our God, oh Lord, thank you. 
Thank you for the rescue. Thank you for the way out of this mess, oh God. Come and be my disciples, you say. My sheep listen to my voice. They follow me. They say no to sin and yes to me. And I, I, I put them in my, my father puts them in my hand and, and, and no one's allowed to snatch them out of there. Me and my father are one. Oh, Lord, I pray this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. You invite us to bring our sin and finally be set free and forgiven. Lord, would you do that today? For Jesus' sake, amen. God and our Father, who is it that breaks the power of sin that has settled itself into our lives? Sin that leads us to death, oh God. Oh Lord, this is an important watershed moment to choose life, not independence. To choose Christ, not rebellion. To choose abundant life and not sin that leads to death. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. Nothing is hidden from you. You know our lives. We're asking, Lord, we don't want to be afraid anymore. We don't want to hide anymore. We don't want to be defeated anymore, oh God. We want victory in Jesus Christ. We want victory in our lives. We want you to break the power of sin in our life, Lord. That's why you died for us. So I pray for each and every one this morning who has made this act in the opposite direction of sin, Lord. To ask for new cravings, new desires to desire Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that your power might descend on every heart this morning with a newness and a freshness of resolve to say no to sin, yes to Jesus. Lord, grant us rescue. Grant us victory in your name and by your power, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen and amen, amen, amen.